It's time for Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, always good to be here. Some interesting items on the agenda today. A conditional discharge, I'm reading here, for making a false claim with respect to sexual assault. What happens if somebody files a police report, makes claims that prove not to be true? Well, in this case, apparently that, a conditional discharge. Uh, this particular case was a young uh, lady, uh, Annika Kobayashi, a 19-year-old from Langford, uh, who had uh, made a uh, report uh, that uh, she had been in the parking lot of the uh, Home Depot, and she claimed that a young man that she knew uh, came up and jumped into her car uh, and then uh, tried to persuade her to go and uh, hang out with him rather than her boyfriend, and then uh, she claimed that he pulled out a knife, forced her to uh, go to his home, where she claimed that he sexually assaulted her. Um, that, uh, no doubt, that without uh, 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 any doubt is a extremely serious allegation. Absolutely. Um, it uh, resulted in, as you would uh, hope, an immediate uh, response from the uh, police. Uh, one of the things the uh, police did uh, was to go and obtain a video uh, from the Home Depot parking lot. Uh, and indeed, it showed this uh, young woman was in the parking lot, but nobody approached her car. Uh, that led to the uh, police uh, interviewing her again, at which point she admitted that her claim about uh, being forced at knife point was false, but she maintained a detailed claim that this young man that she knew had sexually assaulted her. The young man provided a detailed statement to the police indicating that they had had uh, relations, but it was uh, complete, it was consensual. And then on a third interview, the young woman finally admitted that she made the entire thing up. And so that led to a charge under Section 140 of the uh, Criminal Code, yes. which is an offense of public mischief. Uh, and it makes it an offense to make a false report to the uh, police uh, that... Um, leads the police to conduct an investigation. It can also, that section can be made out um, if you uh, do something to cause another person to be suspected of committing an offense or that you report an offense that has not been committed. A variety of ways that can apply. Hmm. And so this young lady was charged under that section uh, and she last week uh, pled guilty uh, to uh, doing exactly that, making this false uh, complaint about this uh, young man that she knew. Um, and the judge uh, ultimately uh, sentenced this young lady to uh, a, a period of probation associated with what's called a conditional discharge. Uh, and so that brings us to what is a conditional discharge and how might somebody get one and what does that mean uh, for this person? Uh, and so a, a conditional discharge is associated with a period of probation and if somebody successfully completes the period of probation, and in this case, the probation imposed was for 24 months and involved doing 50 hours of community work, at the end of that, if a person successfully completes it, they would at that point be deemed not to have committed the offense. Uh, and that has a number of implications. First of all, after a period of time, the record of the conviction would be removed from CPIC, which is the database maintained by the RCMP, showing criminal convictions. And so it wouldn't show up um, if she were to go and try to cross the border, for example, uh, or if she was uh, applying for a job. She would be deemed not to have been convicted of the offense. And the test to get a conditional discharge 
Uh, it comes from a case called Fallowfield. It's a BC case. And the test is that a judge needs to be persuaded that the conditional discharge would be in the best interest of the offender, which is not usually a particularly high uh, burden. You've got here a 19-year-old with no record. Uh, but the judge then also has to conclude that the granting of the discharge would not be contrary to the public interest. And that's where it's usually uh, a more challenging uh, weighing. Uh, and in a case like this of a uh, repeated detailed uh, false claim of sexual assault, yes. uh, in my judgment, there really should be some careful weighing about whether um, it would be contrary to the public interest to avoid a criminal conviction for engaging in that sort of behavior, yes. which can have such devastating uh, consequences. Absolutely. You can you ruin know? somebody's life. In fact, I've got people texting me right now saying a person that lies should get the same jail time that the other person would have gotten if they were believed. And I think that should happen. And I can tell you that if a person was convicted of the knife point kidnapping of somebody uh, and then taking them and sexually assaulting them, the expected sentence would be measured in years. It's an extremely serious allegation. Yes. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think there is perhaps a lot of wisdom of Solomon in, in terms of that uh, approach. Uh, but here, uh, this person uh, will receive the benefit of this uh, discharge, which means that uh, in the future, others may not be aware uh, that she has engaged in uh, this conduct. Troubling. Um, I should also say about these kinds of allegations, even, for example, this uh, young man that she had accused um, even if somebody is ultimately acquitted uh, at trial, or like in this case, the uh, complainant uh, admits that her uh, reports were intentionally fabricated. Um, and I should say in that respect, the uh, the uh, lawyer for the young lady described her as amplifying her story so that she would be believed, which is entirely inconsistent with uh, making a false report. That's not uh, an amplification. Um, the effect of that is that people may be unaware of how she uh, conducted uh, herself. Uh, and of course, that may be important if you had somebody like that uh, decide that uh, making a, a false report in the future would somehow uh, advantage them. Um, and so, uh, well, I, I do think for many uh, people, uh, without any previous difficulty, um, there is a strong case to be made for exercising uh, restraint in sentencing and using sentences like a, uh, a discharge to avoid a criminal record. This particular kind of behavior, the intentional false report of a sexual assault leading to the investigation of a person in this way, has such potentially devastating consequences that you know, in cases like this, it may be that we do need to mark somebody with a criminal record so that we might be aware of who we are dealing with in the future and be able to assess whether similar claims like this ought to be believed. Indeed. Uh, our next story, overturning a conviction with respect to sexual assault and sexual interference. Where do we go on this one? So um, this ties in, I think, to, in some respects with that uh, last uh, case we just talked about. Um, and this was a decision from the B.C. Court of Appeal, which was just released. 
Um, and uh, it is a case that uh, demonstrates the challenge uh, that can arise in trying to sort out whether reports of sexual assault are uh, true or not, right? Um, and this particular case uh, involved uh, an allegation by a 15-year-old uh, alleging that a 27-year-old man uh, had sexually assaulted her by grabbing her bum uh, and then putting his hands down her pants. That was the essence of the allegation. Um, and it was a case where uh, there was a trial, uh, and uh, the man, I should say, was charged with two things. He was charged with sexual interference and sexual assault. The reason for that is that somebody under the age of 16 is not capable of consenting to sexual activity, and you can have this offense of sexual interference. Um, and I should say, even the sexual assault count, uh, consent would not be a defense except in very narrow circumstances where there's uh, a closeness in age and no position of trust or authority. But you had a, a man charged with these two different offenses, and at trial, uh, both the complainant uh, and the accused testified. Um, and the complainant uh, testified in a very brief fashion, alleging that, that this activity occurred. And then the accused testified, and his evidence amounted to it did not occur. There simply wasn't any sexual activity on his version of events. And so the judge was left dealing with the trial judge. How do they assess uh, that kind of evidence. And sometimes people refer to it as a he said, she said, and, and that is to some extent misleading. And in fact, here, the trial judge used that kind of language. And the reason why that is a misleading way to describe cases of that kind uh, is that in a criminal trial, it is not a matter of who does a judge prefer right? That, that would be the appropriate test if you were suing somebody for money, oh, yes. right? Who's more likely to be telling the truth. But in a criminal case, the test is always whether the Crown has proven its case beyond all reasonable doubt. And that requires a judge or a jury uh, to go through a special exercise, which is different from how you might make decisions in your ordinary uh, life, where you're just saying, well, who do I like better between these two people? Yeah, They need to approach it uh, asking essentially, do you believe the accused? If not, could they be telling the truth, right? And then mm -hmm. if not, is there uh, proof on uh, the evidence that you do accept that would satisfy the required test? Now, here, the error the judge fell into, and it became apparent uh, when uh, the Court of Appeal looked at all the various things the trial judge uh, said, uh, and that's important to remember as well. When judges make decisions, they don't just come out and give some thumbs up or thumbs down. They need to explain how they reached their decision. And everything that's said or done in court is recorded, so it can be reviewed by the Court of Appeal. Yes. And here, the error that the trial judge fell into is the judge asked why the accused did not offer an explanation as to why the complainant would be making up these allegations. And the reason why that is problematic is that it's not for the accused to have to explain why would this person make the false report. Like in the previous case we talked about, it would not be for the accused to say, well, why would this person make up the false report of being abducted at knife point uh, in the Home Depot parking lot, right? There may be all kinds of reasons for that. Maybe you don't want to get in trouble with your boyfriend, or maybe she doesn't want to get in trouble with her parents. Who knows? Yes. But... 
that's beyond the scope of knowledge of the accused in many cases. Uh, and to approach it in that way, as the Court of Appeal pointed out, um, is to effectively reverse the burden of proof. It's always for the Crown to establish, beyond a reasonable doubt, that somebody has committed the offence. It's not for the accused person to have to satisfy the judge that it did not happen. And once you approach it from the perspective of saying, why you accused person, what, you haven't told me why this person could be lying about this. Why would they make this up? Uh-huh. Approaching it in that way is to suggest somehow that the person has a, an, an obligation to explain the behavior of somebody else, right? And to shift the burden to the accused person uh, from the crown. Uh, and in this case, that just came out from the Court of Appeal, you could tell that the uh, crown who did the original trial uh, was alert to the fact uh, that the judge might be getting into some dangerous territory uh, when he was asking uh, the Crown and the Defence Council about things like, why would she make this up, <laughs> right? Mm, Which gets into that yeah. territory of, well, that's not the appropriate reasoning. Well, and absolutely, the Crown, yeah. And so uh, the Court of Appeal here overturned the conviction, found that the judge approached it inappropriately, and has sent the matter back for a new trial. But... The cases, in addition to pointing out that important principle in terms of how these things are to be decided, is also an example of why cases of this kind can be so challenging for all of us who are involved in the criminal justice system. There is a lack of reporting of legitimate cases of sexual assault, and that's clear. Yes. And so there is a desire to encourage people to make reports, but it does not follow that every person who makes a report is making a truthful report, right? And so we can't start from the proposition that they must be the victim and the other person must be guilty, and how can we get there? We need to use such caution. Um, And one of the reasons for that is that unlike many other cases of a very serious nature where you would expect to have other evidence, fingerprints, uh, video recordings, other witnesses that might confirm an allegation, often that is completely absent um, in sexual assault cases. All you have is the evidence of the accused person and the complainant. That's often it. It's rare that, like in the case from uh, the Home Depot that we talked about, there might be a video recording which would undermine what the person was claiming happened. Hey, nobody came up to your car with a knife. You were there on your own. That's not usually the case. Oftentimes, it's simply a person saying, you know, we got home and I didn't consent to this, right? And something yeah. happened. Yeah. Um, and that's why they are so challenging from a criminal law perspective uh, and why we need to be so careful that in our legitimate uh, attempts to help people who are uh, the victims of such things, that we not uh, wind up presuming guilt or shifting the burden of proof uh, and uh, convicting people uh, of uh, terrible offenses uh, that uh, would be completely life-altering. And so uh, it is an example of how even an experienced judge can easily slip into a uh, mistaken approach to these things. And thank goodness that we have uh, the system that we do that involves a process for appeal and uh, so that that kind of a uh, decision can be reviewed and we can go and try it again and hopefully get it right on the uh, the second go-round. Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Legally speaking, we'll continue right after this break on CFAX 1070. All right, back to 
Legally speaking on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, as Michael helps us understand the latest legal affairs. Next on the agenda, Michael, an 84-year-old man has an agreement with his brother to live in a trailer park in exchange for working there. The brother dies, and what happens next gets complicated. Take us through it. It sure does, and uh, maybe it's a uh, another example of why we ought to try to reduce some things to writing. Uh, but uh, that is the fact pattern. Uh, this uh, 84-year-old man had lived in this uh, uh, Site P of a home uh, manufactured home park in uh, Canal Flats, which is uh, north of uh, Cranbrook, uh, and he lived there for many years. And then his brother sadly uh, passed away uh, in uh, 2019. Uh, when that happened, uh, the executors of the brother's estate uh, hired a, a management company to manage the, his uh, affairs, uh, and they wound up uh, telling the man that he had to get out of the trailer park, the 84-year-old, uh, unless he began paying $350 a month in rent. Um, and the uh, executors wound up taking the matter to court. Uh, and uh, at court, the uh, the 84 year old um, uh, advised the judge in the pleadings that um, he had an agreement with his brother uh, that uh, he was permitted to uh, live in the uh, trailer park indefinitely uh, in order in exchange for uh, him doing uh, work around the uh, uh, the manufactured home park uh, maintenance and so on, uh, and uh, that was his claim. Uh, that didn't work at trial. The uh, judge, uh, initially hearing the uh, case, uh, gave the uh, executors an order requiring the man to uh, leave. Um, happily, that wasn't the end of it for the 84-year-old. Um, he appealed that uh, decision to the B.C. Court of Appeal. And the Court of Appeal looked at it, and they concluded that th there was certainly evidence that uh, the arrangement that the man described uh, was the case, uh, one of the uh, deceased brother's uh, sons uh, had provided evidence that that was the arrangement. He was permitted to live uh, there rent-free for the rest of his life in exchange for doing ongoing work uh, uh, on the uh, mobile home park. Uh, and the way the Court of Appeal uh, approached it was to uh, look at the uh, provisions of the provincial legislation that deal with uh, manufactured homes, and we indeed have a Manufactured Home Park Tenancy Act, uh, maybe not referred to a lot, but we have that in BC. Uh, and as the Court of Appeal pointed out, that act, the Manufactured Home Park Tenancy Act, allows for uh, tenancies to be entered into, much like a tenancy somebody might enter into if they were renting an apartment, for example, uh, and it provides that Tenancies can be created by various ways, including oral agreements, expressed or implied, and uh, the Act provides that rent uh, is broadly uh, defined in such a way so as not to only mean money, but can also include value or a right given or agreed to be given in return for the right of possession. And so that's the broad concept under that uh, provincial statute. And the uh, executors were claiming, no, no, uh, this isn't, uh, the man's not claiming a tenancy. He's claiming what would be referred to as a life interest in property. Like he's hmm. claiming that he has some right of ownership over Site P at the uh, park. Interesting. The Court of Appeal concluded no. 
This is really a dispute uh, involving a claim to have that kind of a tenancy. And so one of the implications of that um, is that much like if you have a dispute uh, with a uh, a landlord-tenant dispute over a uh, rented house or apartment, you don't go off to the B.C. Supreme Court to resolve it. You would go to a residential tenancy process. And so the Court of Appeal concluded that uh, the uh, trial judge here was an error. This wasn't really a dispute over uh, a claim of a life tenancy, like an ownership claim for the property, which would be something you would deal with in Supreme Court, because the uh, claim was, look, I was allowed to live here for the rest of my life, but only in exchange for continuing to do work, which would be sort of like the continued payment of rent, right? The uh, tenant who's saying, I've got a tenancy agreement allowing me to live in the apartment, uh, isn't claiming that they own the apartment. They're claiming that they have a tenancy agreement, which allows them to live there for a period of time if they, in that case, pay rent or here, uh, do work uh, on the property. And so on that basis, the Court of Appeal found that the trial judge was an error, that there wasn't really jurisdiction to deal with it, uh, and that it should have been uh, sorted out uh, as a residential tenancy matter under that uh, manufactured home legislation. And so the upshot of it, even though it wasn't in writing, uh, the matter has been remitted by the Court of Appeal, uh, and the 84-year-old, although I I must say this uh, started a couple of years ago, so he's now going to be a little beyond that, is going to have his chance to go to a residential tenancy uh, hearing, uh, and uh, it'll be for an adjudicator there to determine whether there is a uh, tenancy in place, and so hopefully he'll have the uh, uh, ability to stay there, uh, and we're not going to have the result of... uh, Uh, ejecting the now 85 or 86-year-old from the uh, property um, when it seems clear that that was the nature of the agreement he had uh, with his deceased brother. And there we are. Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking, during the second half of our second hour every Thursday. We've got about 60 seconds left. How shall we spend them? Well, maybe just quietly contemplating why we ought to get everything in writing to avoid this kind of (laughs) of litigation in the future. (laughs) You know, that's probably the best advice any of us could take today. So thank you so much for your time as always, Michael. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Stay safe. All right. Have a great day. Bye now.